Mosaic believes that the church is designed to be a genuine community of people, creating a safe space of belonging for all, seeking to serve our neighbors with the compassion of God, providing opportunities to learn to be more like Jesus, and living life well together. This can't happen in a one-hour time slot on Sunday mornings, yet we desire to be a worshiping, missional community in Clayton, North Carolina. Visit MosaicClayton.com or find us on Facebook, Mosaic Church of Clayton. It's a great blessing and a great challenge to have a scripture that we engage with a lot. I mean, even if you didn't grow up in the church, you know the, the, the label of the prodigal son or the prodigal son returned home or the prodigal child returned home. And so in, in an effort to preach with my own fresh eyes on this scripture, I read a lot of sermons that other people have preached on this um, over the years. Um, I want to give credit this morning because um, I, I wove a lot of uh, Barbara Brown Taylor's thoughts on the prodigal son in my sermon today, along with some other folks as well, in order to help us to step into it fresh. Barbara Brown Taylor, if you don't know her, she's one of my favorite authors, and um, every time that I've heard her preach, she engages with scripture in a way that takes the passages we've always known and, and helps us to engage with them in a different way, uh, often by explaining culture better or history better. Uh, she's just a well-researched preacher. And so she's written uh, and preached four sermons on the prodigal son. And so she gave me a lot of material to, to pull from and glean from, to add with some other folks. So um, especially for um, our podcast, I want to I wanna give um, BBT, as she's known uh, by her fans, um, uh, uh, credit for some of this sermon um, as she helps us to engage with the prodigal son in a different way. There's nothing new about a young man leaving home today at least. In fact, in a day where news is often about beleaguered parents who can't get their kids out of the house, um, the idea of a son leaving home actually sounds encouraging. It sounds like it would be a good thing. I know we all feel uncomfortable and a little rightly so when we talk about the Cosby show. I mean, there's good reason. But, but when I kept thinking about a family situation, I, I kept thinking about the Cosby show and how, um, if, if you remember, in the last final seasons, they, they kept, um, all the kids kept coming home and they kept bringing their kids and he, that became like a theme that ran through the show then the last episodes that um, no matter, no matter what, the kids kept coming, no matter what he did, he, the kids kept coming back into the house. He kept, they kept bringing them back home. And, and the theme of those last few seasons of that show um, reflected and shaped what was happening in the culture and, and how we saw the role of families. Kids are supposed to move away, be self-sufficient. You give them support as a parent and, and send them on their way. And when we, we take that Cosby show understanding of this parable, we see a young man who struck out on his own and failed miserably. He broke his father's heart in the process, but, but all is made well when he returns home and asks for forgiveness. In this understanding of our parable, we see the forgiveness that God offers each of us when we return, realizing that we can't do this on our own, offering up confessions for what we haven't gotten right. And there's nothing wrong with that interpretation and, and the way that we often engage with this scripture. But I 
want to peel back some of the layers of the parable, put ourselves in the culture of those who would have heard it for the first time. Let's set aside our individualistic views of forgiveness of God and our personal salvation and maybe get a broader, more communal view of what this passage is about. Jesus' world was largely agrarian. Chances are that 9 out of 10 of Jesus' listeners were rural farmers, like the family in this parable. Their land was their livelihood. They received it in trust from their ancestors, and they held it in trust for their children. There was no courthouse where they could go down and record their claims to it. Those claims were kept in the memory of the community, where honor was everything. Break faith with the community or lose its respect, and your property lines might just be forgotten, just like that. In this world, an individual on their own had little meaning apart from his or her family. Identity was conferred in the plural, not the singular. And some of my work in the fall with a a small church in rural uh, uh, southern Virginia, helping them to begin the pastor search process, I was eating at the the one restaurant in town with one of the deacons, and he was lamenting about a conversation he'd had with some of the good old boys in town early one morning, having breakfast at the restaurant. They were um, referring to somebody as a come here, like, you know, oh, well, you know, I mean, they're a come here, so, you know, we don't really listen to them. And this gentleman, this deacon, lamented to the guy sitting around the table that Well, he was also a come here. He just moved there recently. He said, oh, no, you're one of us. You're new here, but your family's got land here. You go way back. You're good. And the deacon was lamenting the problem that any newcomer would have coming into town, coming to the church, including potentially a new pastor at the church, because they would always probably be a come here. In Jesus' day, you were either one of the village, the tribe, the group, or you are come here. And that excluded you from, from a lot of things. You didn't have the level of protection that the folks that had grown up there had. Also very different from our understanding of family and community, there was, there was a kind of honor that would have been given to the patriarch of the family. A kind of honor that we can't really understand. I don't mean just kind of like general respect, yes sir, no sir kind of things. The idea that, that a patriarch would give property to his children while he was still alive is actually spoken against by rabbis of the day. In other words, you didn't do it. It was frowned upon in this culture of honor. To do this, you had to give up some of your honor, and your honor was everything. Told in this kind of culture, today's parable becomes the parable of a dysfunctional family. A story about a weak patriarch with an absentee wife and two rebellious sons he seems unable to control, who's willing to sacrifice his honor to keep his community together. It's a reunion story, not only a repentance story. When the younger son asks for his share of the family property, he deals his father a double blow. He not only means to break up the estate, he also means to leave his father, who counts on both of his sons to care for him in his old age. If there's a mother upstairs listening from behind a bedroom door, then she gets clobbered too. When her husband dies, everything they have goes straight to the sons. 
She's dependent upon them for everything. But the younger son is not thinking about his mother. He's not thinking about his father, his family's honor, or his village. He's thinking about himself, what he needs, and what he wants, who he hopes he may turn out to be in the world. Staying in relationship is not high on his priorities. Being his own person is. Getting out of town to find himself is. Whatever his reasons, he asks for his share of the family property, and his father responds to the double blow by turning a double cheek. He not only divides his property between his sons, though he's still very much alive, he also allows his younger son to sell his share so that the boy can liquidate the assets and take them with him when he goes. Remember, his assets were his farm, his land. When I grew up, I remember from some of my children's Bibles, like the father giving the the younger son like gold coins standing in the middle of a road. I don't know. That's how I picture this story going down. But, But that probably isn't how it happened. For the son to have his inheritance, he would have had to sell off a portion of the family's property and take the money, more most likely. Can you imagine the humiliation this father, this patriarch in the community would have endured as other people heard of his land for sale? Anyone who puts his family through this kind of humiliation would surely only return if he'd made his fortune in the world, proven his worth. Instead, the younger son loses everything. And he loses it to Gentiles, Roman citizens, pagan pig owners, complete strangers to the God of Israel. What he does is so reprehensible that the Talmud, the book of law, describes a ceremony just to deal with what the younger son has done. It's called a ketsatze. Don't quote me on that, but that's how I'm pronouncing it this morning. That's what it's called today. But it was a ceremony to punish a Jewish boy who loses his family inheritance to Gentiles. There was a whole ceremony for this. Here's how it works. If he ever shows up in the village again, the villagers, this is so random sounding, the villagers can fill a large earthenware jug with burned nuts and corn, break it in front of the prodigal, and shout his name out loud, pronouncing him cut off from his people. After that, he becomes a cosmic orphan who might as well go back to living with the pigs that he was slopping. The prodigal's hope, apparently, is to reach the father before the village reaches him. (laughs) He has his confession ready. He's been preparing it. But he isn't really returning out of love, it doesn't say. He's returning to find a job on the farm as a hired hand. He's returning home out of hunger. If he can earn enough to pay back what he's lost then perhaps he can dodge the ketsetsa ceremony. Once again, being in relationship is not top on the prodigal's list of priorities. Being in groceries is. Being under a dry roof is. So he's rehearsing what he's going to say all the way home. And either the father is watching for his son every day, or someone sees him before he reaches home. Because we know that the father runs to him when he's still a ways off. And he runs. Something patriarchs didn't do. His father 
runs to his son, runs so that everyone can see his pale ankles, runs so that his robes get wedged between his legs and flutter out behind him like an apron, like a mother instead of a father. He runs and puts his arms around his son and kisses him right there on the road where everyone can see them. He's bringing back honor to his son and to his family while giving up his own. Before the town can get together for the Getzatsa ceremony, he creates a ceremony of his own. The one involving the fatted calf, the prized meat, the best robes, which would have been his own, and shoes because only slaves went barefoot. He's restoring his son and his family, but not on their own, but by being in relationship to him, the father. And as the preparations are being made for this reparation banquet, the older son shows up. This son's problem is that no one asked him whether he wanted to be reconciled with his good-for-nothing brother. No one asked him how he felt about spending what was left of his inheritance, taking care of three people now instead of just the two, or being known as the prodigal's brother are wearing the second best robe now that the best robe is already taken. The elder son is the good son. He's done everything right, and he isn't about to sit down at the same table with the self-centered, pig-loving, sin-sick brother who's cost his family so much grief. So the elder son refuses to come into the house, a terrible insult to his father, right there in front of everyone. The only way for the father to stay, save the evening would have been to stay right where he was at the head of the table, ignoring his elder son's absence until his guests leave. And he can go outside to slap the boy silly. But you already know this father. His honor means nothing to him where relationships are concerned. He will do anything to keep his family together. If we can resist the temptation to reduce either of the two brothers in the story to stereotypes, the fun young, fun-loving younger brother who finally learns his lesson versus the sour older brother who's never taken a risk, then we may be able to recognize that we need them both as much as they need each other. Each of them embodies at least half of what the gospel is all about. As long as they remain estranged, neither of them can live whole lives. The younger brother lives entirely by grace, having dishonored his father, emptied his trust fund, and all but starved to death. He's weighed his options and discovered only two stay where he is and finish starving to death, or go home and beg his father to take him back. When the old man surprises him by running to meet him, a dishonored father running to meet the boy who did him wrong, there's no doubt what forgiveness looks like, nor how much it costs. The younger brother lives entirely by his father's grace. Will anyone tell him he's wrong? The older brother, meanwhile, lives entirely by obedience to his father. The theological word is righteousness or or rightness. The older brother has devoted his entire life to being the very best, the most right son he can be. 
He has never left his father's side. He has never gone against his father's wishes. He has been loyal, respectful, hardworking, and honest. Will anyone tell him he's wrong? Unfortunately, the way the parable is usually handled, you you think the father did this to both of them, but it's not so. The father has nothing but words of love for either of his sons. In the face of his younger son's remorse, he orders his servants to dress the boy like a prince. In the face of the older son's despair, he says, son, you are always with me. All that's mine is yours. This man refuses to choose between his two children. All of his energy is focused on getting them back together again, since each of them have something that the other badly needs. If the younger son is going to survive, he badly needs some of his older brother's discipline and devotion. If the older son is going to survive, he badly needs some of his younger brother's brokenness and humility. And that's where we find ourselves this morning, on our journey to the cross. Jesus tells this story in response to to the Pharisees, who are concerned about those that Jesus is spending time with. God had love for the Pharisees and the people outside the church. God has love for the people of Mosaic and the people out in the world that don't yet know Jesus or have looked at what he has to offer and say, nah, I think I've got it on my own. In our journey to the cross, we need to pay attention to our brothers and sisters in the world that need to be on this journey with us. We need to pay attention to the ways we're like the older brother and the younger brother. We need to see ourselves in the story. We need to see the places in our world where where we can be like the Father, offering reconciliation, offering hope, giving up our own dignity, our own pride to extend love and grace to others. The Father, the people of the village, the older brother, the younger brother, who do we need to reach out to on our journey to the cross? Will you pray with me? Lord God, community is, is defining for what it looks like to be in relationship with you, with each other. We experience you in community. This morning, may we look at this story not as a story of rights and wrongs, the better way to be, but a way to see ourselves in, in all of the people in the story. To remember that we serve a God that runs to us on the road. To remember that, that we are the Father on the road as we look to other people offering forgiveness and reconciliation and hope and love. May we see ourselves in the younger brother, knowing that we each go our own way, no matter how hard we try. Help us to have grace and humility as we return to you every day. To know that what we have, we don't deserve. But help us also to be like the older brother. To find ways to have discipline in our life. 
God, help us to see your community, to see ourselves, to see Mosaic, to see the larger Clayton community and the communities that we're a part of through work, through family, just driving around, going to get the groceries. God, help us to see our community in the way that you do, as the Father does looking down the road. To be mindful of those who who need to come and join us on this journey to the cross. Who just need to hear a word of forgiveness or of invitation. Give us your eyes. It's in your name we pray. Amen.